Today's sponsor is Audible.com, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash decode. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode, and you're listening to Recode Decode. You may know me better as the person who recently renamed Google Alphabet, but in my spare time, I do a little tech reporting. On Recode Decode, we talk about where tech is going, where it's been, and how it affects everyday people. Today's guest in the red chair with us over Skype is investor Chris Saka. Chris is one of Silicon Valley's most well-known people, a one-time Googler who went on to make successful bets on companies like Twitter and Uber. Chris is also, shall we say, outspoken. He's been putting heavy pressure on Twitter in the last few weeks as one of its major investors, and soon he'll be a guest shark on Shark Tank. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Now, i got to ask you. All right, go ahead. You're going to start like that. Executive editor. I haven't heard this new title, executive editor. That's my title forever. Are you... Are you dressing the part? I mean, does this come with more suits and ties? No, and I've always been executive editor. It was either that or queen of all she surveys, and so I thought that was better, a little more classy, because I'm a classy woman. You know. <laughs> As you know, since we've known each other for so long, correct? We've known each other since Google days, correct? Yeah, way back. In fact, I was just about to go to Google and type in Kara Swisher is, and I bet that Google suggests the next one would be classy. Oh, that's right? it. No, probably obnoxious is what it would come up with. But let's talk about you, speaking of obnoxious. No, let's start with um, <laughs> like your – let's talk about Twitter to start with, although Google really is something I'd really like to get into because of this change, and you had so much experience with Larry and, uh, and uh, startups and things like that. But let's start with Twitter because that's most been in the news with you recently. Now, you repeatedly said you're not an activist investor. What are you exactly to Twitter? What do you, how do you look at yourself and what? you're doing there? Uh, I mean, an activist in- uh, investor, I think, is a much more negative connotation to someone who sure. doesn't collaborate with the existing management team and board, somebody who is uh, normally trying to break a company up or shake it up for a big hoard of cash that they have or a piece of the profits that are coming out of it. But I mean, I've been an investor with Twitter since the first time outside investors could get involved all the way back. Right. Uh, in the early days, when I remember Evans having lunch with money. Well, I remember when you talked about it. What did you? What was attracted you to it before it was Odeo? You came in after Odeo, correct, or before? Yeah, yeah. I was pals with everyone while they're Odeo. I was still working at Google at the time, and I remember they were that sad about um, you know the fact that their product wasn't working. And I was there when uh, they came to the realization that they were building something that they themselves weren't excited about using. Right. And so uh, it was fun. When, when Twitter first came about, I wasn't there on a hack day or anything like that. I wasn't one of the very first users. But uh, I, the guy showed it to me. I think Ed was the one who showed it to me first. And uh, I kind of got it, so I signed up for an account. But it wasn't until a friend of ours was actually traveling in Africa and tweeting from there by SMS that, that it really kind of a light bulb went off for me, like this was something special. Mm-hmm. Why was that? What did what was special about it to you? Well, I, I actually wrote a blog post about this in like 2006 or something, but it was that up until then we had Dodgewall, and I was a Dodgewall fan, right. but Dodgewall presumed that its purpose was to get us into the same place. So, you know, it was all set up so that you and I could go intersect at a particular restaurant or bar mm-hmm. or event. And what Twitter reminded us of is that it's sometimes way more interesting to not be sharing the same physical space, but be sharing that experience instead. And so here we have this buddy in Africa who is texting, you know, from 
the airport in Kenya and we're like, whoa. Like, and broadcasting, essentially. Yeah, and broadcasting. Yeah, he's letting us all know about Kenya literally while he's in Kenya at this moment. So we were sharing a moment independent of geography. And that was when Twitter started to feel pretty special. And that's when you started investing in it? Uh, no, I mean, I think it took another, like, six, eight months before Ev let anyone invest in it. But that's when I started showing up at the office and trying to be helpful. Right. So you've been, you know, since the beginning, and all the different permutations of management, all the different dr- dramas that are there. It's a very dramatic company for such a young company in terms of management, <laughs> correct? You think? Yeah. You yeah. Think. No, I mean, in the early days, I was, uh, I, yeah, I was an angel investor. Then I was an advisor to the company, so I spent... Uh, Three years as like a as like a compensated advisor. I was one of the first business people they had there, so I did their first revenue deals uh, alongside trivia wise Jess Varelli. Actually, one of her very first jobs mm-hmm. while she was Ev's assistant was to negotiate all the first revenue deals that Twitter ever had. Um, that and then Dick, I left as Dick came in. Basically, I went and rode my bike cross country. But over the years, uh, I just remained really involved. I recruited a lot of the top talent they have there. Uh, help prep for you know product launches and earnings calls and that kind of stuff, and it's just uh, it's a company that's near and dear to my heart. So, had they welcomed that involvement of you in the beginning? They certainly did. did. Did they start to not welcome it, or do you feel like you didn't have a voice there that you didn't have to go public with with your worries about the company? I think the biggest pitfall is to refer to they mm-hmm. as like the company, right? Because we have a company here at Twitter where there is. Uh, you know, there's been complete turnover in the C-suite since right. the IPO. Right. Right. There's been very little consistency in the management team uh, over the, you know, several over the CEOs. Years. Right. So Correct. What's, what Le- many CEOs, several CEOs. Yeah. I mean, we've got three ex-CEOs on the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a pretty unique company when you say the they. Right. And all throughout the years, I've had people there who I'm very close to and have great trusting relationships with. And then I have people that... You know, I don't think you're doing a great job or they don't think I'm being particularly helpful and then I bump heads with. And so I, I hesitate to say did they, you know. What just, just prom- then what prompted you to be outspoken publicly? Now you do, you're, you know, you're very, you're very voluble on Twitter. You, you, talk, you, you talk a lot. You have a lot of blog posts and things like that. But this was a, this was a really interesting moment because it's a little different. We're a, sort of an inside investor. And again, you're not an insider. Um, says something rather profound. That was a very long essay. It was, what, 8,000 words? It, you know, it laid out a, a business plan, essentially, a strategic plan for them. What prompted you to do that? Yeah, you can imagine I didn't write that in a vacuum. I certainly didn't just kind of lone wolf it and put it out there. That was the subject of <clears throat> discussions with former employees, current employees, folks on the board, the management team. And uh, I think there was some pent-up frustration that a lot of the ideas in there are things that we had been talking about for years um, that were just low-hanging and easy fruit that just hadn't been tackled yet in Twitter. And I think one of the biggest frustrations as a shareholder was watching a company uh, that has incredible talent, that has the most valuable content in the world, just keep punching itself in the face after every earnings call because it was incapable of telling its own story. And so... After you know, spending literally, I mean, I'm trying to. I, I have a I have a list of about 250 institutional investors that I check in with regularly, uh, related to Twitter and some mm-hmm. other projects and stuff. And after just spending months and months with them, trying to help them understand the promise, and repeating myself over and over again, and answering the question, "Why are you so passionate about 
Twitter, I finally decided, you know what, I'll write all this out. And so I ran it by a bunch of people in the company, outside of the company, um, the board, other investors, analysts, and just said, this is why I care about it, and this is what I think the potential is, and this is what they're not doing right now. So did you not feel like you could do it privately with them or that they weren't listening or what? Because, you know, it was a, it was a big act to do that. And I mean, Carrie, you, you and I have talked about Twitter for sure. years and years. and a lot of and these so, issues, a lot of these lack of product innovation, those kind of things. And so a lot of things in that in that blog post were pretty familiar to you. They yes. were not new ideas, nor do I take credit for a lot of those ideas. They're things that have been recycled and bandied around for a while. But it was it was a dysfunctional company that wasn't uh, necessarily executing on a lot of the obvious stuff. There wasn't a lot of product direction and agreement. Uh, and in the communication of how all of the things it was doing, how the interrelatedness of them was just a complete fail. So there was no communication between the company and, and investors and external stakeholders and the press as to why all these things mattered. And so it was an attempt to put a cohesive framework around all of the things Twitter could be and to move beyond taglines from like where the town square or right. eccentric circles or whatever. Right. And, um, and it, it, you know, among investors, it worked. It worked and how? So, what, did, what did you think you did? What, what do you imagine well now, you did? Well, now investors have a framework for understanding how they should be thinking about the company that moves. Except you're not forward. CEO. Except that you're oh. not the one leading the company at this moment. I never wanted to be yeah. CEO. Yeah. So they have a framework so, for your ideas behind it, or do you feel like this is the, the path that Twitter should be on? It's, it, it wasn't necessarily a path. It's just saying, like, let's highlight some things. So Twitter spends very little time. I mean, Twitter's communications has been incredibly poor. Mm-hmm. So Twitter, let's just highlight a few things. Twitter hasn't really made clear to the rest of the world that they don't actually have to go out and do content deals. The, the content is already there. Right. Right. So unlike a Yahoo has to go pay for content, Twitter doesn't need to pay for content. It's all already in there. You know, you saw somebody throwing these ideas around yesterday, like Twitter should hire a bunch of journalists and get right. the right for Twitter. And you're like, bullshit, it's all already there. Right, it they is. They don't need to. So that's just one big theme is that when you hear analysts writing about like, you know, like all Twitter's content plans, they've already got it all. They just need to make it easier to find. And so then when people, you know, when you hear Wall Street ask, well, how could they ever monetize something like Periscope? You're like, I'll tell you how they could monetize Periscope. It's really easy. And then when you hear Wall Street kvetching about, um, well, they don't, they haven't done anything with logged out and the logged out user doesn't have any value. Right. Like, well, let me lay out why the logged out user has a lot of value, why there's obvious value in the search intent that comes from them and how Twitter can be valuable to that user as well as to the advertiser, as well as to the media partner. So what is your goal here? Do you think you've, you've reached your goal or do you, what do you, what was your goal and do you think you've hit it and do you have any regrets of how you did it or anything like that? <laughs> my goal here is for the stock to be worth more than the IPO price. <laughs> like, yes. That's, and my goal here is that my friends who work at the company are happy and stay there. Uh, my goal here is to see something through that I've believed in for a long time and see a project that can be, uh, that can be what it's bigger what it's than, it, than it is. Bigger than it is. That's always been sort of the promise of Twitter. It hasn't lived up to the promise of Twitter, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to dismiss it out of hand. Like, I love you know how easy it is for people to put down Twitter. I mean, even I was really frustrated in the last earnings call to hear Twitter's CFO refer to it as not having reached the mass market when mm-hmm. over sixty million Americans a month use Twitter. Right. Um, more than do the MLB, NHL, and NBA right. finals all at once. You know, uh, so I was just that that blew my mind actually to hear that kind of comment made publicly. That said, I, I always think it could be more. I think it could be more compelling for more people. I think there's something of interest for everyone in the world there, and I was just trying to present one lens 
on how other folks could back away from that incredible negativity and see the promise of Twitter. So now, where are they now? They, they're searching for a CEO. They've got, it's sort of, even the CEO search is a little rot. Um, they, you know, they're trying to fix the product. They're doing this project lightning. Are the expectations too high of what will turn things around here? Or do you, um, they seem to do that a lot, have these expectations. And then the CEO search feels a little bit unusual in a lot of ways. And it's not clear <laughs> and confusing. I mean, maybe you don't agree with me on that. It feels a little confusing to me. No, I, I love your euphemisms. <laughs> um, so, I was going to say no. goat rodeo, but you know. I mean, look, Twitter's problems at this point are self-inflicted. Right, this the CEO transition uh, between Dick and the current situation could have been a lot cleaner. Uh, there is no doubt they could have spent a lot more time thinking about the replacement ahead of time. That happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I don't really buy the explanation that they didn't want it to leak to the market and that right. kind of thing. It's just I agree with you. Search firms work on that stuff all the time. They could have already done a lot of this interviewing and stuff. So that doesn't smell right. Um, in terms of you know how it was originally announced and you know, basically the external comms team setting Dick and Jack up to go on television and say business as usual. Mm -hmm. That obviously crushed the stock and crushed hopes of a lot of people. And that was just really clumsy. The press release about how we'll only accept a a CEO who's working here full time. I have no idea what they were trying to accomplish with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, that that Jack Dorsey can't have two jobs, presumably. That's what everybody felt. Well, it was interesting, though, because... The public market didn't actually care about that part yet. Yeah, like that you know now it's dominating the conversation because Twitter decided that's what should dominate the conversation. But that's the public market wasn't really that caught up in it and that worried about it yet. And you're not going to publicly bully a guy into quitting one job and taking another because you put a press release out. Right. But so that is fascinating to me. And then just the overall kind of duration of this process yeah. is, I think uh, you know other companies that aren't in such a precarious stage of their development might have the time to conduct a long drawn out CEO search, but uh, this should be done sooner rather than later. And so many people yeah. think this, do you, do you, are you, you in favor of anyone in particular? And if not, do you feel like the company should be bought? Those are also, you know, many rumors around about companies being interested and there's some obvious buyers from Google to Microsoft to Apple to SoftBank. It goes on. Um, it's a very look, valuable media property. Yeah. I, look, the company has value to a lot of folks. And if you, Pose a particular buyer, I can make the argument for why, you know, that it would be a good fit for them. I don't want to sell a company right now, particularly at these values, because I just think it's incredibly undervalued on its promise. And I think it's being punished for some bad product choices that were uh, made a couple years ago when nothing was really getting done and some kind of overly negative sentiment that was communicated on the last earnings call that I don't think, from what I can tell outside, is necessarily reflective of the current state of the company. So I'd like to see it remain independent. Uh, That said, I said on Twitter last week Mm -hmm. that uh, I do think there's a great team to run the company, and I don't think we have to search very far for them. I think um, there's three people I'd like to see involved. I'd like to see Jack continue as the CEO and make that permanent. And I say this as someone who, you know, comes from a place where I was around the last time uh, Jack was let go, Mm -hmm. and and I uh, am coming from a place that. you know, I, I originally had doubt in Jack, and so mm-hmm. I've had to build an impression of him from scratch. And even in his time with the company so far, he's already had a really positive impact internally. I think he has uh, brought much more transparency and accountability to how people at the com- company communicate with each other. I think he has streamlined 
how some of the products are being built and, and brought teams together that may have been building conflicting or competing products internally. And, uh, and so I'm, um, I'm really impressed by what I hear from folks who work there about his management style and the impact he's having. And Adam Bain? In parallel, uh, well, in par- what I was going to say about Jack, the CEO, is that he has um, one of his superpowers is the ability to attract and retain amazing talent. And people want to go work for Jack. He's an inspiring guy. And that's something that I don't think anyone's talked about over at Square. It's like the last personnel story from Square was the Keith stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody has talked about how strong his bench is with Sarah and Francois and right. Gokul. Mm-hmm. We're three of the most capable executives in all of Silicon Valley. You know, it's just as, as Square pivoted from being kind of a consumer you know, dongle thing into this credit and payroll business, they kind of went dark so that they could evolve their business in this other direction, but at the cost of not really investing in the public perception of those executives. But I think if anyone digs and if you, you know, do any reporting, everybody knows those are three of the Very strong bench, absolutely, 100%. Yeah. So, and Adam Bain? Uh, Adam Bain is absolutely the best revenue person in the business, period. But beyond that, I think he has such deep emotional intelligence. He already has more than half of Twitter reporting to him. Uh, you know, he has such deep emotional intelligence that he knows how to manage, solve conflict, get people pointing in the right directions. He's a former CTO and a former head of product uh, with a computer science degree. People love him on the product and engineering side. It's like a pie piper for employees. Yep. But beyond the company, you've got all the media partners adore him. The advertisers really like him. All the political associations and, and governments uh, have a lot of respect for Adam. And the users like him, too. He's an incredible user of the product. So you feel like there's enough inside to, that you don't need to bring in some outside person. Is there an ideal outside person you'd like to see in there? Is there someone, if you could just wave your magic wand? Yeah, sure. There's really great ideal candidates. I would take Reed Hastings, Sheryl Sandberg, Sundar. Uh, Which none of, none of whom are going to come. Cheryl's a no. I already asked her. Um, <laughs> but, is it, but do you feel like that there's enough internal talent to be able to run that company? There's incredible internal talent. So you know, what, what Twitter needs is a combination of some product insight and vision, which I think we get from Jack. And I think we also get from Ev. You know, Evan Williams is the, the guy founder. who took the company from 2 million users to 200 million users, who really helped evolve some of the core features of the product since the earliest text-based days to really be uh, media-centric and understands. He was very early to understanding video. He's very early to understanding live video. And I think it would be great to have him back involved in the company. During the last couple of years, despite being a huge shareholder and being on the board, he wasn't, his, his product input wasn't really invited or welcomed back into the company, and it would be great to have him there. Okay, so I'm going to finish up with Twitter now, and then we're going to move on to other things. But w- when do you think this is going to happen? What is your prediction? Well, they've said it'll happen sometime in September. I wish they would do it right now. Yeah. There's just no reason not to do it right now. And in fact, I wish that Jack, Bain, and Ed would lock themselves in a room, figure the deal out between the three of them, and then just come and tell the board this is the deal. I see. That would be interesting. That's an interesting way to govern. We'll see. It's all not right. an interesting way to govern. It's just these are the guys who have all the skills and the talent yep. and the leverage. It would just be nice to cut through. I think that would actually be real leadership if they did that. All right. So we're going to go on to other topics, but first a word from our sponsors. If you're always on the go like myself, you don't have time to sit down and read, audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. 
Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. I never go to the gym, by the way. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the Internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries audiobooks in every genre imaginable, business, classics, history, self-development, just to name a few, although I do not know what self-development is, nor do I do it. I'm right now listening to Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls by David Sedaris, which is nothing like what it sounds. Uh, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash decode. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today. We're back in the Red Chair interview with Chris Sacco. We've just been talking about Twitter, about which he has a lot to say, but there's other issues that Chris has been involved in. He's a big and active investor in tech, a former Google executive, and uh, besides Twitter, he's been in Uber and a whole bunch of things, including some podcast investments. But let's start with about Google, because Chris, you were there for a long time and did a lot of startup-like things at the company, and I'd love to get your thoughts on the new Alphabet name. On the name itself? Yeah. Or, or the I don't, I, I don't, yeah, yeah, what are they doing? What do you think they're doing? Um, I mean, this is something I think has been in the works for a long time. Right. This idea of, um, you know, there's a principal agent problem they've always had there. And I think kind of unlocking that structure a little bit and letting individual companies flourish there more has been something they've, they've wrestled with doing for a while. I mean, the branding, who the hell knows? I read the blog post. I read how they tried to justify it in a few different ways. I don't mm-hmm. care about that stuff. Okay, but what, we talk about the idea of startups within the bigger company. Now, you were involved with trying to get access when Google was interested in doing access for people, and you were going to spin off a company, correct? Larry Page was interested in doing that then. Well, I was, yeah, so I was working on uh, lots of stuff, like the wireless initiatives, all the spectrum stuff, some of the early fiber initiatives, a lot of what looks like access and fiber now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't really have, I think we called it alternative access for a little while, but they didn't really have a name back then, but... Uh, you know, my, my four years at Google came up, and I told Larry I was thinking of leaving, and one of the reasons I was thinking of leaving was I said I, I wanted to go out and make some, some big money. I wanted to be a founder. Mm-hmm. And he was constantly trying to create an environment in which people would want to build their next company at Google. And so which is hard, people, which is hard, you might note. It, yeah, it, I mean, it is and it isn't. It, building access and stuff up to that point um, I actually found it to be incredibly easy. I had all these great resources. I didn't have to pitch any VCs. I, mm-hmm. uh, the lawyers just protected us from on high. And so it was actually easy if you could cut through the internal red tape to get that done. And if you had a great sponsor, and I had Larry Page as a sponsor, so it was easy to get stuff done. That said, my stock grant was an overall Google stock grant, and it wasn't going to necessarily benefit from any of the stuff I was building. And so Larry said to me and to the co-founders of my team at the time, uh, if you guys want to spin something out, come to me with a proposal and we'll spin something out and we'll make a separate company for you with a separate uh, separate stock. Now, I wanted to do it. My other co-founder, who was an early Googler and had already made a bunch of money, she wanted to do it. And then the third guy on our team was um, was a guy who had just come over from a, uh, a big Fortune 500 company and who's like, hey, I'm putting a new kitchen on my house right now. And if I tell my <laughs> wife that I'm going to leave you know, to do, do something startup. crazy like that, she'll beat me up. So we can't do that. And it was funny. It was just a reminder of like the different stages of, of sure. risk tolerance that people have. But, uh, but it, it, you know, I think one of the things that wasn't discussed a lot in the coverage of yesterday is that Google 
is going to have to make more moves like this to start giving people more direct stake in the upside from the outcomes of the businesses that right. they're creating. You know, I was, I've been writing a piece right now called I stands for, the real Google alphabet, I stands for innovation, but also irrelevance. And so they're worried about that, keeping people within it that are super talented, that are doing dynamic things. How, what, what, what is that like in Silicon Valley? Sort, sort of the chasing of the youth, the chasing of the new. Um, is that hard for a big company to do? Is that possible in the end? Well, I, I mean, there's two components to that. One is like just trying to keep millennials engaged, which is an incredibly frustrating task, you know, a generation. Uh, and I'll just paint in broad terms. I know there are lots of people who don't necessarily fit this, but there are huge pockets of young people who've never had like real jobs. You know, they never mowed lawns. They never waited tables. They, um, they, they haven't really had to earn it. They didn't borrow money to go to school. They were on incredible scholarship programs. And so they just don't have that same kind of work ethic and drive uh, that we have seen uh, again and again in the kind of entrepreneurs who float to the top. And I think there are more of them than there have been in the past pervading some of these Silicon Valley cultures. And so that's one thing. It's like, you know, and I say this with all kinds of grains of salt. There are definitely, I see resumes from young people who have gone to Africa and built an entire startup, you know, a nonprofit based before while they were still an undergrad and that kind of stuff. So there are definitely kids at all mind blowing ends of the spectrum, but we do have a cultural problem right now in Silicon Valley of entitlement. And so when you ask the question of like, what's it like keep attracting people and keeping them retained, uh, you know, within the ranks, it's hard. Right. We, there's, you are competing with flush venture capital and growth capital at the wazoo these employees are more expensive than ever. You know, people. I'm down. I'm talking to you from LA right now, where people talk about how Snapchat is just offering 250k cash to an engineer in LA. And so we have a couple small LA startups. They're like, how the hell do we compete with that? Well, how um, the hell do we compete with that? <laughs> well, luckily, my two startups down here are really mission driven, and people work there because they believe in their work more than Snapchat can offer. You know, on a but, bigger picture, how hard is it to be an investor now in, in this environment, this sort of well, frothy environment? Well, I wanted to just complete your other question really quick, which is that, so within the rank and file, there's a certain entitlement. But above that, there is absolutely uh, the ability for Larry and Sergey and their resources and their platform can make a true entrepreneur's dreams <laughs> much more likely to come true over there. Mm-hmm. Starting something at Google with their blessing means it's going to exist. Like there's no there's no existential doubt anymore about will right. this thing happen? It will happen. It'll be a matter of scale and excellence and do they have confidence you're the best person in the world to pull it off. But that's a company where you know they gave me as a twenty something a billion dollars to go out and buy and build data centers. And uh, and what we achieved on that side of the business was just unprecedented in scale. And so I do think they have a unique environment that, which they'll be able to let people go crazy and, and see their wildest dreams come So this true. is a smart move from your perspective of keeping it, keeping it exciting and, and uh, keeping things fresh. I think it's an incredibly smart move. Yeah. I think uh, you know, there will be a little bit more politics. You'll lose what people often refer to as synergy. But I think overall, all of these other companies within Alphabet that aren't Google will be nimbler. And there will be an opportunity for the folks who are building those things to, to have uh, substantially larger upside 
as a result of their contributions. So let's finish up on a couple of things of what it's like to be an investor now. You're also an investor in Uber, another exciting company. You were a very early investor there. Um, and you, you, you're in lots and lots of companies, Los Angeles and all over the place. What are you looking for now? What is the thing that's important to you as an investor? And what's it like? What's the environment like? It's rather frothy. You do operate not in, so you live down south. Um, what, do you, what do you think is important right now? Well, so I live everywhere other than Silicon Valley. Yeah. I think that's been important. I think that's been a really helpful perspective. Uh, a couple months ago, my one of my neighbors here in LA who used to be a uh, used to work at a defense contractor. I don't think I don't know what he thinks I do for a living, but he pulled me aside. He's like, "Hey, I'm going to show you this cool new app." And pulled out his phone and he showed me Uber, and <laughs> I was thrilled. I was like, "Yes." Um, it's fun to be outside of that echo chamber. That kid's got to have something going on there, I think, at Uber. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just really fun to be outside of the echo chamber. I think it leads to much healthier perspectives. Yeah. Uh, that said, I think we have passed the worst phase of, uh, of the entitlement in the bubble within C and, and Series A rounds. Like, I think it was worse six months ago and it's gotten better. Meaning that I think we are, we've seen enough horror stories of what it's like to work with uh, party rounds raised online through crowdfunding sites and have no support, no professional investors actually helping your company. And so there's been a little bit more flight to quality. And that's been nice. It's made for more balanced conversations with portfolio companies. I think valuations are still higher than we'd like them, but I don't think they're unfair in the seed stage stuff. And I think it's uh, it's clearer that when we're, you know, when we're, dealing with a new startup, they're pitching us their idea, but they're also interviewing us for what our contributions could be. And that's great. That's kind of the mutual balance I'd like to see. I think when it gets too far out of whack in either direction, you get bad relationships and bad deals. So, so are you, are wh- better. what are you looking at? What do you think is exciting right now? Uh, I'm just trying to look where other people aren't. So you know, one of my favorite companies is this company called InVenture, run by Shivani Saroya. She's a silent killer. Uh, Shivani, figure out a way that you download an Android app in Africa, Latin America, and Asia, and within seconds, she can determine your creditworthiness and give you an instantaneous mobile money loan, hmm. and her repayment rates are higher than any FICO loan. And so uh, it's mind-blowing how effective this is. The science behind it is extraordinarily complex. She has attracted data scientists that rival those that work at Uber and all out of a, you know, three rooms in Santa Monica. And that's really fun for me because for the first couple of rounds of investment there, no one was paying any attention to her. Right. And, uh, and no one was paying any attention to Africa. You know, it's fun. I, I've learned a lot along the way, but it's also been fun to watch how many people have just dismissed a business that operates in Kenya and Tanzania and Nigeria, uh, just, just initially dismissed them. Any other places you think are ignored? Uh... I don't know. I mean, if they are, I'm not talking about them right now. So, we, you know, we did the InVenture deal a couple of years ago, and then we rarely told people about it unless we right. needed to recruit somebody. Right. Uh, I saw there's a company in Y Combinator class that uh, is, is feebly attempting something like it. And mm-hmm. when TechCrunch covered it, they didn't even mention the existence of InVenture. So, uh, meanwhile, like, you know, InVenture is dominating the space right now. So, it's been fun. I think we succeeded in flying under the radar long enough. We'll have a little coming out party now. What will you not get involved in? Is there any area where you're like, no way, I'm not going to be investing? Yeah, so there's a couple things. One is I always want to be proud of the deals I do. Mm-hmm. So when our daughters grow up and uh, and start asking like how we made money, I want to be proud of every deal we did. So uh, it leads to us saying no to things that might 
make money, but would make me feel a little bit weird or, um, you know, just feel sketchy that I'm not proud of. Anything in particular? um, Yeah, like stuff like, and I'm not trying to put it down, but uh, stuff like Whisper Mm -hmm. in the early days. Um, I think, and and I I haven't seen that product in a while, so it might have been cleaned up, but there was enough kind of weirdness and sketchiness there uh, that I didn't want to get involved. There were some other, like, these get me rated or these things, like, um, you know, kinds of things where kids are putting up selfies and having everyone else rate their cleavage and stuff. Like, yeah, you don't want I was to like, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't really be proud of that. I wouldn't want to rate your cleavage either, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, you've also been in podcasting. You were on Gimlet Media. You were on the show, which is really Well, I was just going to say one second. I have a couple other rules for investing, though, by the way. Right. Um, so I won't invest in anything where there isn't an opportunity for us to make real money. And that's an important role. I think we see deals all the time that look like, hey, that would be a fun deal, but if it's already priced at $50 million pretty, we just need to give ourselves a chance to see outside. And that's something that I think the Valley has forgotten about a little bit, is that as some of these younger companies go and try and maximize valuation, there may still be upside for that company, but the no is just like, no, as an investment, it doesn't really, the risk reward isn't necessarily there. And then um, the other role we have is... Um, is to only invest in things where we know we can personally impact the outcome. And I think that's something else that happens. We get pitched really great ideas all the time, but if I don't think I can have a material impact on the likelihood of the success of your company, then I won't do it. Fantastic. All right, one last question. You read your daughter your daughter, and you read the stock tables on, uh, on uh, Periscope or Vine and different things like that. Why do you do that? I'm just curious. I think it's fascinating. Uh, I think one of the things that holds back women in this country is um, – you know, obviously, I think we, well, let's go all the way back. So there are some great books like uh, Cinderella, My Daughter, and uh, Redefining Girly mm-hmm. about the princess industrial complex and how we box in girls and girls' identities way too early in their lives and uh, teach them messaging that's more about their physical appearance than about the quality of their content and thoughts and stuff like that. And then as you go deeper in that and you start meeting more female entrepreneurs who have made it through, they talk about how much harder it was yeah. because they didn't grow up... Uh, you know, with any financial literacy, they didn't grow up doing deals or thinking about that kind of stuff. So, from the earliest days, like, uh, yeah, we do the stock report on Periscope. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very enjoyable. Three, my three-year-old and two-year-old will tell you whether we're making money or losing money. Um, but we also, before bedtime, we um, we negotiate how many books we're going to read that night. So, uh, my three-year-old will tell you it's a negotiation. And <laughs> I'll start at one book and she'll start usually at either 100 or 10 and then uh, we'll come down. We'll, we'll usually end up somewhere around five or six books. Ah, so, but she has uh, so much leverage over you, Chris. You don't even realize it's all about leverage, she, says Donald Trump. Apparently, I don't think she understands that yet. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of leverage there. But I just I, I don't necessarily want my girls to be to have to grow up to be business people. But no matter what they do, whether they even go to the arts or anything, I want them to have that kind of business literacy and that ability to look out for themselves and talk that language. I think it's a really empowering skill. And in that vein, my last question, do you think Silicon Valley has gone far enough in the diversity thing? Is it too much talking about it or do you not enough? No, I, I mean, we certainly haven't gone far enough and I'm glad we're talking about it. Uh, I think it's going to take a while to fix, you know, in terms of the number of candidates that are there. Um, you know, I actually was glad Mr. Kinder called me about the board seat project. I have a board seat that I'd love to fill with an incredible woman and i Told her and the entrepreneur whose board it's on, like let's work on that. Um, it's you know it's it's fine. I mean I sign on to these things, uh, but at the end of the day, there's really only two employees at lowercase, uh, me and another white guy. Yeah. 
And so I actually had, a, you know, I had an offer out to a woman to be a partner at Lowercase, and she took a different job. Ah, oh, well. Uh, but Why don't we'll, you write an essay on it? I think it would be good. Like an 8,000-word essay on it would be great. Chris, hey, you don't want to talk about podcasts? You're going to ask me about Oh, yeah, podcasts. Why are, what, what's your, what, is, what are your thoughts on podcasts? I think they're making money all of a sudden. Yeah. I think your, your timing is right. Well, thanks. Uh, I think all this macro stuff is coming together, and the audiences are so high quality that you're able to actually sell some ads and make some real money. Well, so we'll see. I am a proud Gimlet media investor. Well, fantastic. They can start up and reply all on mystery show from those guys. Those are all terrific shows. It's cool, but I think I think your timing is fortuitous, Kara. As usual, Chris, and as usual, talking to you has always been a delight. Uh, thank you so much for being on Recode Decode, and we'll talk soon. That's right awesome. on. Thanks, Kara. Thanks. And now we move on to Too Embarrassed to Ask, which is brought to you by Audible.com, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash decode. Moving on to Too Embarrassed to Ask, in which we talk about technology and how people use it, or in this week's case, how people pay to use it. Walt Mossberg is here to answer questions and talk about the changing payment plans for wireless carriers. What does the end of phone subsidies mean for phone companies, and what does it mean for consumers? Welcome, Walt. You're joining us via Skype, correct? Correct. All right, let's get started. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? Good. Phone subsidies are really a pain in the neck. I have to say, I don't understand them. It's, it's confusing, and, and a lot of people don't understand who's paying for what and what kind of deal you're getting and if you're locked in forever. So Exactly. I, I hope you have some answers. So first, I'm going to explain what the situation has been and what it's changing to first. Okay. So this is something, uh, just as an aside, I've actually, uh, I, I think the first column I wrote railing about this was, I don't know, 15 years ago, but... Um, basically, the way it's worked in the United States is they've been in, uh, locking you into these two-year contracts, and in return, uh, you pay much less than the phone actually costs, and then you have to stay with them. You can't switch carriers unless you pay a very high termination fee right. until you've kind of worked off your debt. It's like indentured servitude. Yes, it is. Indeed, that's what it feels like. You never know when it ends or when you can upgrade or things like and that. If, and if, let's say, you have a, a, a new iPhone or a new Samsung or something, and they bring out a great next one, which doesn't happen every year, but sometimes they do, and you say, oh, my God, I'd love that one, and I'll give this one to my kid or, or my spouse or somebody, um, you're, but you're locked into your contract, so you can't get – it's not time for you to get a new phone. It's like, it's like mother may I. You have to ask the carrier, and it's, it's, it's just awful. Right. All right. Well, let's answer some questions from, uh, from readers. Shunji Lee asks, phone subsidies didn't make any sense in the first place. They're restrictive and expensive. How did they get started? Well, I don't know the exact answer, but I have a good theory. All right. Um, And I think this also goes to the question of why do companies that sell networks have retail stores? It's the same thing. Uh, And here's the answer. Um, At one time, and you and I are actually old enough to remember this, um, mobile phones were a novelty. They started off, as you know, as big giant things installed in your car. And I think to get things off the ground, the companies that had spent the money to build these networks subsidized the price of the phones, which Mm -hmm. were even more expensive than now. That is my best guess. And I think that it had a lot of business advantages for them going forward because it kept you stuck to them as carriers. And so Mm -hmm. they kept them going. 
Okay. But if you think about it in a logical world, if you were reinventing this, you wouldn't have subsidies. And there's no reason why Verizon should have stores. It's right. not selling a physical object. Right, right, exactly. Uh, okay, from Ray Williams, what's forcing the hand of wireless vendors to move to non-contract models? I think there are three things. One is T-Mobile, which is a relatively small competitor at AT&T and Verizon, and which a couple of years ago dropped the two-year contract and dropped the subsidy and put in a system where they tell you the full price of the phone, which in the case of, say, the iPhone 6 base model is $650. Which seems like a ton. Similar to the Samsung. Mm -hmm. And then they charged you a certain amount a month for like 24 months to pay off the phone plus the plan. Uh, That's number one. Number two, I think consumers wanted to be able to change phones or change carriers with more flexibility. And that's another thing that eventually they had to listen to. And they could see that they could still make money. Uh, And then third, you know, most other countries in the world do it this way and not in the subsidized way we were doing it. But what's forcing them? I mean, do do consumers not like it? I think think T-Mobile and uh, initially forced them all to put in some sort of option for this. Uh, But now these options are moving to the forefront, and that's probably because of consumer interest in them. Uh, Like at AT AT&T, you know, I think more than half of their consumers are choosing, even though they originally didn't play it up, are choosing this approach. And Verizon has just announced that this is the way it's going to go altogether. Great. For new customers. For new customers. Okay. So the gnome, that's his Twitter name, how will this hit Apple sales? I know many have iPhones who will be lured away by the initial cheaper price. Yeah, I'm, what, what this person means is that the way these uh, uh, prices, uh, price plans work is you're paying for the data. Let's put that aside for a minute because that's still very expensive. But um, there's, it's, like, it's like layaway or you know, buying something on a mm-hmm. credit card. It says zero down. $27 a month for 24 months, and it really works after that $650 thing or whatever the phone costs. You know, it's just divided by the 20 months or 24 months or whatever it is. So the initial number can actually look less than $199, uh, but it's still an installment plan. And even if you left the carrier, you still have to pay it off. But my theory is that this could hurt Apple in a way because it will, you know, we've begun with T Mobile have the exposure of what these things really cost and like i say 650 is the retail price right, apple apple doesn't lie about it exactly mm-hmm. it's on their site but um yeah, most people have been thinking about it as 199 uh-huh. yeah 199 so i think it's going to put price pressure on apple and samsung interesting karen e robinson have how have two year contracts affected carriers incentives to provide high quality voice service ie why are calls so bad uh I think calls are bad because we have a lot of problems with network coverage in this country and congestion. Um, Every one of the carriers and every one of the handset makers has begun building in something some of them call HD calling. They have other names for it in which you get these really crystal clear calls. I don't know, Kara, if you've ever mm-hmm. stumbled on one of these calls. No, never. Usually usually it has to be between two people on the same network mm-hmm. when the moon is out at yeah, a certain... Yeah. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a rare thing, but it's really quite remarkable when you get it because it sounds like the person's in the same room with you. Um, so they have the technology 
And, um, you know, but the question is, why should they invest in this kind of expensive thing when they've got you stuck in a two-year contract? Now that they don't and won't, maybe they'll invest more in that stuff. Yeah, probably not. All right. Hollis Liu writes, will this boost iPhone sales because of a shortened consumer update cycle? Well, I just said I think it will put pressure on the price of iPhones, and I think it will. But because uh, why should a phone be any different than a laptop or something that you know they follow Moore's law and they right. try to cut the price? But this guy has a point in that because it frees you to upgrade more often. Uh, if Apple can do something dazzling, or and it applies to other people, but obviously it's Apple and Samsung is really the game. If they can do something dazzling, then um, people are freer to jump to the next phone. Right and. So that might help them in that sense. Do you ever imagine phones being like not costing so little, or do they have to be at the six hundred dollar price range? Well, Kara, I think there'll be a range. It's just like it's just like laptops. I mean, you can go into Best Buy, as you know, and buy a three hundred dollar Windows laptop without a touch screen and you know without a lot of bells and whistles. And for a lot of people, that'll be fine. But you eat whether you're buying Windows or you're buying Mac. You're going to buy something that's a thousand dollars or more mm-hmm. uh, at the high end, and Apple only plays at the high end. Uh, so Apple itself may, with the iPhone business, have to move have to move the price down some, mm-hmm. like I'm mm-hmm. saying. But they'll always probably hang around in the premium in the premium market. What I can imagine is phones being treated like other electronic devices we yeah. have, and not sold by the. It's like not, not sold by the network company. So, for instance, I don't know who provides your internet at your house. Mm-hmm. Comcast. Okay. So, Com- uh, me too. Comcast doesn't sell the things that connect to their internet. You know, it doesn't sell uh, phones and it doesn't sell tablets and it doesn't sell laptops and it doesn't sell, you know, Roku's. It doesn't sell these things um, that, that we, we use their broadband for. We pay them for broadband. That's what they sell. And that's it. But on wireless phones, uh, we have this different situation where they have thousands of stores run by the network companies. They sell this stuff. So I think this is a step in the separation mm-hmm. of these things into a device, uh, a device market where you know you can buy things online or you can buy them uh, in, in a store that just sells the device, and then separately you buy the network service. It's like Google Fi, you know, Google's experiment. It only works on one phone at the moment, but they're not selling the phone with it. You just, if you happen to have the phone, you can sign up for Google Fi and use it, and it's just a, it's just a service. Well, we'll see about that. All right, Walt, thanks very much for coming on, and we'll talk to you next week about the new things coming from Apple in the fall. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thanks a lot. And now with our Enough Said segment, where we talk about some critical issues in tech. Today, we have our own Jason Delray, who covers commerce for Recode, talking about buy buttons, which are popping up all over the Internet. Jason, welcome. Thanks for having me, Kara. So, so one of the things we were talking about is the idea that, that Amazon does not own everything in retail online anymore. Not what, yet. T- what is happening? What is the big trend happening Sure. So uh, there's a big trend of uh, startups and companies like Pinterest trying to push the idea of discovery commerce, the Mm -hmm. idea that there's still room in online retail for uh, impulse buys 
And that's an area Amazon does not really own yet. Mm -hmm. Amazon is really demand fulfillment engine. You go there knowing you either want to buy a certain product Mm -hmm. or a certain brand. Right. And I want to buy a coffee machine. And in offline retail, one thing that offline retail is still really good at is is the idea of discovering new things. You're walking down an aisle. You might not know you wanted that, and then you just buy it. Right. So so Amazon isn't there yet. So you see companies like Polyvore, which Yahoo just bought mm-hmm. and paid a pretty penny for right, about, 200, million. about $200 million. Um, and also Pinterest really is the big elephant in the room in, uh, in this emerging segment. Where people are just browsing things and then they people, see things. People are browsing and a lot of entrepreneurs think this is one area of offline commerce that has not yet migrated online. Amazon hasn't nailed it. So let's really invest in... So this is the spontaneous nature of shopping that is kind of on the hunting of it that, that people do in real life, in the real life when they do it. And they just find something delightful and they buy it. Exactly. And and you see non-Amazon retailers seeing perhaps this is somewhere where they can catch consumers before they reach Amazon. So pushing buy buttons out onto Pinterest, onto Twitter, So you see something on Pinterest or, or Facebook. Like you see what? You see like an item or something. You, you see, a, uh, you see a, a, a cool purple lamp. Right. You didn't know you want – you knew you wanted a new lamp. You didn't know that that, that shade of purple might work for you. Mm-hmm. And you see it on Pinterest and, you know, through partnerships with a Macy's or, you know, other retailers, you'll soon be able to buy that right there. And so – do you, so, do you still think you can replicate that feeling in real life? I don't online? know. I mean, do you have to get to virtual reality? Do you, where do you see it going? Like, well, there, that, interesting you say that because there, there are some people who think Amazon might be working on some augmented reality or, or virtual reality. So what would you do? They're, Put on an Amazon helmet or what? Took a, yeah, I don't know. Bezos goggles. I yeah. mean, and, <laughs> uh, but but they they have they have they definitely have a secret team right now working on retail type initiatives, experiences, uh, experiences. Right. Um, I don't know if they'll ever see the light of day. So Amazon's thinking from sort of a technology viewpoint. Some of these other platforms are more of a straightforward Pinterest type layout of images mm-hmm. that might capture someone's uh, attention. You're going to see these buy buttons everywhere. This idea of you see it, you buy it kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, Google, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Pinterest, all working on it. I'm skeptical about them all building big businesses that way. Pinterest obviously has the most uh, attention because of the nature of why people are going there already. But but I think there could be use cases where a Twitter around live events could push product out in a, in a meaningful way. But when we talk about big platforms, I think Pinterest is is the one that that people so look at. What is it finishing up? What does a regular retailer do now? If they can't delight. That's the last thing they had. Is so, this idea of yeah. Delight. So if you can't differentiate it based on what you sell, you're in real long term trouble. So I mean, we see Sears is you know their last earnings at 13 percent down from last year, right. which is unheard of. Um, Macy's, uh, Amazon's about to pass Macy's next year in terms of apparel sales. So though I, I don't know what the they they try to compete by partnering with startups on same day delivery and all this stuff, but another way is they're trying to reach people online before they go to Amazon. So on a Pinterest, on a Twitter, on a Facebook, catch someone before they know they even want something, and hopefully you you earn that sale before Amazon does. Well, let's see. Thank you, Jason. Thanks. This has been Recode Decode with Kara Swisher. Thanks for tuning in. Next week, we'll have another new guest on the program. If you like what you hear, please give us a great review on iTunes. If you don't, please don't. And we'll be back next week. Thanks a lot. 
This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes. Featuring candid conversations with leading voices like Snapchat CEO Evan Spiegel, Uber founder Travis Kalanick, reality star Kim Kardashian, Shark Tank host Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, President Obama, and more. They're all on Recode Replay. Thanks for tuning in.